0: Welcome to Que Pasa, HSIs, a podcast dedicated to everything Hispanic-serving institutions. I'm your host, Dr. Gina Ann Garcia, bringing you the news on what's happening in HSIs. Join us as we explore the history and evolution of HSIs, culturally relevant and liberatory practices, current and emerging research with HSIs, and the policies that shape servingness. Saludos, HSI familia, and welcome back to Que Pasa HSIs. This episode marks the end of Latinx and Hispanic Heritage Month, but it doesn't mean we are going to stop talking about all things Latine and HSIs. Although there is an elevated focus on Latine people, community, and culture during Latinx and Hispanic Heritage Month, we need all 12 months to really delve into the complexities of this racial ethnic group that is so complex. It includes all races, many indigenous groups, and 20 different ethnicities spanning the Americas, or what indigenous people across Latin America call Abiyayala. The question that we must grapple with as educators in HSIs, however, is how do we serve students that fall within the H and beyond the H that have historical, linguistic, cultural, and indigenous ties to Latin America and the Caribbean? Is it even possible What I love about the podcast is that each guest believes it is, but does it in their own way and with their own critical approach. On today's episode of Que Pasa HSIs, I talked to Dr. Aaron Doran, who has written extensively about many things, but especially Hispanic-serving community colleges. In bringing Aaron to the show, my goal was for us to complicate the I in HSIs. I talk a lot about complicating the H in HSIs and I focus extensively on the S in HSIs but have not called for disruption of the I as often. In order to center community colleges and HSI work, we have to understand the history, mission, and focus of the community college system and then bring that together with the HSI history, mission, and focus. According to Excellency in Education's most recent data, 41% of all HSIs are community colleges. So we must think about how they are distinct from four-year HSIs. Erin is a proud Tejana who was born and raised in El Paso, Texas, who received a Doctorate of Education in Educational Leadership from UTSA in 2015, making her a three-time graduate of the University of Texas, San Antonio, which has an extensive history as an HSI. Her dissertation received the 2016 Dissertation of the Year Award from the Council for the Study of Community Colleges, and she is now an associate professor, congratulations on tenure, in the School of Education at Iowa State University. Her research centers Latinx students, especially those who attend community colleges, but she also studies college learning and teaching, ethnic studies, including Mexican American studies, and Hispanic serving institutions, of course. Erin is one of my longtime friends and co-conspirators in disrupting all things, especially academic conferences. Hashtag, if you know, you know. I honestly don't even remember when we first met, but I am proud to call her my colleague and friend. I thought I knew a lot about her and her scholarship, but she blew my mind in new ways during this episode. I hope she blows your minds too. All right, so we're going to go ahead and get started with um, our episode today. Dr. Aaron Doran, thank you for taking the time to be here today on Que Pasa HSIs, where we talk about all things HSIs. Thank you for having me. Of course. I can't wait. I'm excited. But before we talk about HSIs, because we're going to dive into HSIs and servingness and Hispanic serving community colleges. But before we do that, I like to make sure that the listeners know about you and know a little bit about who you are and how you come into this work. So tell us first about your higher education journey, how you went into and through higher education to get to where you are today.
1: Yeah, so I was born and raised in El Paso and um, my Mexican-American mother was very insistent that I be able to leave her house to be able to go to school out of town, um, which was something that she wasn't able to do in her generation. Good Mexican daughters didn't leave their parents' house until they got married. So my mom was insistent of like, go, you know, have a college experience and love it. And so I chose the University of Texas at San Antonio. Um, I went there for my undergraduate. Um, I majored in history, had phenomenal fem tours in particular um, within that. And so I decided to stay there. I went straight through with my master's program there also in history Um, and I remember a guy at at my freshman orientation saying that, uh, the people who became professors were actually the people who just loved college so much that they never wanted to leave. And in a lot of cases, Mm -hmm. that was, that -hmm. was totally my experience. (laughs) I had been an orientation leader. I had worked, um, a little bit in res life. I had been a reader grader. I'd been an S I'd worked in supplemental instruction and all of these different things. And so, um, I had originally planned to go do a PhD in history and at the time I was really deep into studying Holocaust studies and 20th century French history, which is stuff I don't use at all nowadays, (laughs) but um, I ended up getting a job. Well, two things happened. So when I finished my master's degree in history, Um, I got a job working as a graduate student advisor with the College of Education at UTSA, and I loved it. I just fell in love with working with graduate students in particular. Um, It was a wonderful, wonderful mix of student affairs and academic affairs, which I realized I'm not a, I'm not like a true student affairs person. I really like the academic stuff as well. And it was the perfect blend. I loved it. I had a really good thing going on with the College of Ed while I was working there. And then I in preparation for getting a PhD in history, took a job teaching night classes at a local community college. And that was my first step into the community college world. Absolutely fell in love with the students themselves, their stories, their ganas, like everything about them. And I just had mad respect for community college students, um, especially the ones who were who were attending at night because most of the time they were working full-time or they were caregivers. They were raising families. They were trying to prepare to go into the military, like all of these different things. And just the level of like focus and dedication for taking classes with me that some of these classes would go until almost 10 o'clock at night. And then like they'd get up and start their day all over again. It was just something that I, I just had a deep, deep, deep amount of respect for. So Um, as I started thinking about the PhD journey, I started rethinking it and found out that the college of ed that I was working for had a program in educational leadership, um, that I thought at the time I was not going to be a professor that I would just go be an administrator. Uh, I remember one of my professors telling me like, Oh yeah, Aaron, like one of these days you'll be a VP of what I don't know, but like, you'll be a VP and stuff like that. And so I thought that was what I was going to do. And, um, you know, you make a plan and, and things don't go that way and you kind of lean into it and it's been great. So um, I finished my EDD in 2015, again, from University of Texas at San Antonio. Um, I went on the job market, which took several job cycles. The academic job market is, is quite the spin cycle. And uh then I ended up getting a job at Iowa State University and at this point as of this Friday I will be an associate professor with tenure. Woohoo! <laughs>
0: I'm super excited about that. I yeah. like that it's as of Friday, July 1st. As of fr- Friday, it's a <laughs> July 1st. <laughs> they can't take that away from me.
1: No, no. Nope, nope.
0: So by the time this this uh, episode airs, you you will be tenured. Right. Full short, there. full tenured. Awesome. New business cards and all. Yep. Yes. Awesome. I love it. So you're a
1: three-time UTSA grad. Is that like Three a thing? That people,
0: people talk about that? Like, is it Roadrunners, right? Three-time? Roadrunners,
1: road yeah. I mean, I think that... Um, you know, a lot of times when I meet people, especially people who are from Texas, they're like, oh, that's the Longhorns, right? And it's like, no, nope, that's that other UTSA. that's the flagship I went to. I went to its little cousin uh, down the road. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's Roadrunners. Um, I loved, deeply, deeply loved mm. my academic journey at UTSA. And, and a big reason why I stayed there for my master's program was just feeling like I still had so much to learn from the professors there. Um, even though my master's was in history and not education, I, they prepared me in, in ways for, for reading, for writing, for scholarly life in ways that are still paying dividends now.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So it's interesting that you say that, um, people, you know, think you went to the UT Austin, the mm-hmm. big flagship, and y'all are the little cousins. But the reality is in this conversation and the HSI conversation, they're not even a cousin. They're like a little tiny newborn uh, yeah. HSI, right? Uh. U- UT Austin just became an HSI, whereas UTSA is like the tia, right? Yep. Like abuela, maybe even, right? Like UTSA has been an, an HSI for quite some time, right? So it, it, so. Part of what I do in higher ed, as you know, is sort of flip the narrative, right? Yep. So people think, oh, the flagship, and you're just a little cousin. But I'm like, actually, UTSA is is the big, you know, the big deal when it comes to um, HSI's, and particularly in Texas, right? And and um, sort of leading the way and helping to helping to define servingness.
1: Um, 100 percent. So with- I mean, just to add, I mean, San Antonio is the birthplace of HACU of the Hispanic Association of Colleges and Universities um it was involved with a lot of the original advocacy and lobbying work that went into the creation of HSIs like it it was one if you go back to the original documents like it was created under the argument that there was a dearth of higher education institutions available to Latinxes in, in the South Texas border region, in particular, and, and on the argument that UT Austin was inaccessible to Latinx students. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And
1: so, like, there's a lot of history there where, yes, it's very much in there and, and very important to Texas HSIs, in particular.
0: Yeah, for sure. So yeah, let's talk about that, because flipping the narrative is important, right, when it comes to HSIs, and you're doing a lot of that really important work, um, and, and documenting, you say the history, you know, you have a history degree, you're, some of the work you've done is, is the historical documentation, mm-hmm. so um, so so thank you for that. Um, so I want to go ahead and then jump into your serving this journey since mm-hmm. you are at, you you know, three time uh, roadrunner at UTSA, the, the abuela of UTSA or of HSIs. Um, tell me about your serving this journey. Have you always known it was an HSI and how and
1: how did you come into HSI consciousness? So, uh, you know what? I did not hear the term HSI until I took my first class with Anne-Marie Nunez in probably 2012. I think I took her with the. Second semester of my doctoral program, I didn't, and and in part, I will say that like, because my degree is not in education and, or my previous degrees were not in education. So like, unlike, I think most of our our colleagues who come up into PhDs in higher education, they may have gotten a a master's degree in student affairs or higher ed or whatever. And I didn't, and that's fine. Like, but that was just something that I had never heard of. That doesn't mean that there weren't markers there. I mean, at the, at the time, um, the, the president of UTSA was Ricardo Romo, who has this like very, very interesting narrative in that he was born on the West side of San Antonio. He had this, um, legendary track career at UT Austin. He'd gone out to California, got a PhD, was a very well-established Chicano historian, um, and then ended up like ascending to the presidency of, H- of, of the at the time the only public university um, in his hometown, and that's also one thing that is really important about UTSA. For about its first forty years, it was the only public uni- four-year university in San Antonio, um, and so you had you know the, the a Latinx identified president. Um, one of the things that I think is so interesting that I think there's not a, whole, I don't know that people think about this, but because I, part of the the work that I had done as a master's student was I worked as an office assistant for the art cura- curator for UTSA. And because of President Romo, U- UTSA has acquired a, an actually really, really beautiful collection of Chicano art. That's all over the place where if you are paying attention to the walls and are actually seeing the sculptures and, and things like that, um, that are all throughout the campus. Um, I think that you see, uh, Chicano icons or Chicano, um, imagery all over, um, which is really beautiful. Um, and, and, one of the reasons why I bring this up is that has also been something that has been like a point of galvanization for students. Um, there is, for example, a a sculpture on the UTSA campus that, uh, depicts a man carrying a woman on his shoulders, cruise, uh, crossing the Rio Grande or the Rio Bravo. And, um, that had become, uh, uh, you know, when we're talking about the Dream Act and, and the push for the Dream Act, which had started, you know, in the, in the early 2000s when I was still a student, a, a master's student in particular, um, that had become, um, a, a point of attack for, for college Republicans on the campus to depict it as, as an illegal act. It had been a, a place for um, some of the, the Dream Act students to use it as a point of protest um, in order in order to say like this is our history like this is this is a, a, a pertinent part of who we are as people and, and of our stories of, of our ancestors and things like that. So anyway, I think art was one thing that I interpret as just being able to see yourself reflected, not just in the classroom, but the broader campus community. But I think in terms of like what my consciousness is or what I can remember, um, you know, I I think it's tied to the larger narrative of the community and not necessarily the institution. So you have UTSA, you have, um, you have some of the Celebrations that are held citywide, like Fiesta, which often gets called like the city's Mardi Gras, the celebration of the different cities. Um, I worked in the history department, and there were um, some uh, Spanish and Chicano historians who had close, like, there was one guy who was kind of a, a legend unto himself who had a lot of close connections to the government of Spain and to the Canary Islands and stuff like that. And so he um, you, you sort of saw like the Hispanicness through him or whatever. But I, like I said, I feel like it was much more about the community that we happen to be located in much more so than the university itself. I mean, I, I recall like not really knowing, like, for example, when, when I did my support courses for my bachelor's degree, Um, the, the African-American studies program was, was being fought for while I was an undergraduate and I had taken one of the professors who was heavily involved in, in organizing for that. Um, the women's studies program was available and I actually took a lot of my support courses in women's studies. I actually didn't know that there was a Mexican-American studies program on the UTSA campus until I started working for the college of education almost 10 years after I got my degree or, or when I started Mm. my degree, I should say, but yeah, yeah, I didn't know that that was an option. Wow. And now you write about
0: Mexican-American and now I write about it. (laughs) And I
1: often think like, wow, I wonder, I wonder like how that could have helped me on my journey Mm. while, you know, even earlier than it is because I, I write about ethnic studies in part because I see like how, it gave me a language for, for understanding myself and my family and my mother and all of these different things. Um, and so I just see those kind of learning experiences as transformative. So I, I want them to get, uh, bigger in scope and, and bigger profiles and, and, you know, larger student enrollments just because I do see them as truly transformative. And it was something that I just flat out didn't know about in my own journey.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I'm listening and also like taking notes mentally. I should be writing them down, but like all the things that like aren't in the servingness framework, right? Like we reference this servingness framework, right? Um, and you mentioned, you know, Amory Nunez, is obviously one of the, the co-authors of that. Um, um, but like this idea of like uh this regional feel, right? Mm-hmm. I think about feel a lot at an HSI. It's not in the servingness framework because feeling is hard to um, it's hard to measure, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's hard to it's hard to to say that there's a feeling, right? Besides people's stories, which we should listen to. Um But the feeling, right? Like we don't why haven't we, you know, operationalized that right as as part of the serviness?
1: But you're not the first in this question to to talk about a feeling, right? It feels like it. Mm -hmm. I mean, something that I think about is, you know, when I've when I've read about like tribal colleges and universities Mm -hmm. and the way that those have been intentionally designed, where like this you know, I guess to, to kind of use the language of serving this, like this tribal identity is imbued in the actual architecture of the physical space. And it has been done with this mindfulness um, from the very beginning. And so um, if you can't, you know, HSIs are not new institutions. They're not newly created institutions for the, for the sole purpose of being an HSI. And so, um, if you can't design something from scratch, then like, what do you do with a physical space? And yeah, how do you, how do you quantify what that, what that feels like? Um, how do you measure it? I don't, I don't know that, I don't know that you can, but I do know that there are things that, uh, you know, like when I've been on, uh, the UT El Paso campus, or I've been on the university of New Mexico campus or the New Mexico state campus or whatever, um, those are, those are places that feel of the communities that they're in. And so I think, and I pick sort of those three, since that's the region that I was born and raised in. And so those are communities that like, and, and campuses that feel like home to me, they, they do give me that, that overwhelming feeling of, of home. Right.
0: For sure. Yeah, the region, the regional part. And I mean, region comes up often, right? Like I, I've written about the importance of region in my own work. Um, you know, uh, I've read multiple articles recently, like that the region is is so important, right? Because the re, uh, HSIs are reflective of the regions that they're in. And you just name these really you know, strong Latino regions that are reflective um, mm-hmm. on the campuses. So uh, so yeah, I think there's definitely some more work um, to be done there. And the art, anytime I mention art, you do talk about art, um, like in a talk or something, it, it always motivates at least one person. And all of a sudden they, there's like a, a mural committee, like we have to have murals. <laughs> like people literally want to have like murals because that's going to make us better HSI's because Dr. Garcia said, and I'm like, It kind of
1: will help. (laughs) I mean, you know, you know, I have to admit that. So when, so when I worked for president Roma's office, when I worked under the curator, I mean, he, he and Dr. Roma. So Dr. Roma was known for having, um, an incredibly large personal collection of Chicano art of being a very, very, um, prominent Chicano art collector. He and his wife together. Um, and then he really took this work up, um, He really took this work up as president to invest. And I think one of the things that was so cool is he took a particular interest in the Chicano artists who were from San Antonio and from the region or some who were from like northern Mexico or things like that. And so, um, you know, I can I can remember the names uh, of some of these um, of some of these men, like you know, Jesse Trevino and of Armando Sanchez and the, and these very like prominent San Antonio San Antonio-based artists. Um, the first time I'd ever heard of Vincent Valdez, who is actually like one of the most prominent young Chicano artists right now, he was born and raised in San Antonio. Like he graduated, I think, from Luther Burbank High School. And so the first time I actually ever saw Vincent Valdez painting was was in the UTSA collection. And so That is something that they have a treasure trove of, and I do recall that when um, Juan Munoz had had um, become the president of the University of Houston Downtown Campus, uh, something I heard as like personal conversations with one of my family members, he had said like he wanted to be able to invest in in the art the same way that that Dr. Romo had, and so um, I think that that's one way to to think about I mean it's it's a public display but it's also something that can be inspiring it can be a reminder of the community of the history of the stories of things like that I mean it regardless of what if you think it's good art or bad art it usually prompts some sort of response and people look at it
0: Absolutely. So I'm glad that that came up in your response because I, I talk about it a lot, and I hope that people that are listening will think about that. As far as the enactment of serving this is complex, <laughs> um, right. and the and the uh, assessment of it is complex to be able to to say that we have these these artists that right are reflective of our students' identities. Like that, that's powerful. Mm-hmm. So so thank you for for bringing that up. You're welcome. Let's go ahead and talk a little bit about your research. So you look at multiple intersections um, relevant to serviness and HSI's, including the role of community colleges, college learning, teaching, and faculty developmental education, and the historical evolution of HSI's, to name a few. Because I know I've read at least one article about leadership also at HSI. Yep. So I know you've re- you write you know very deeply about um, HSI's, um, and I'm you know really familiar with your work. But one area that I think is important on our I want to make sure we we spend a good amount of time. Is your focus on community colleges? Mm-hmm. Um, I think HSI's. You know, we we uh, my own research. You know, uh, a scholar of HSI's is, has generally been on four year institutions, and we see a lot of uh, deference to four years because that's what we do. We defer to like the the you know whatever uh, more normative way of being, I guess. Um, but the community colleges have such an important role because Latino students do enter you know community colleges in, in high numbers. Um, So talk to us about the relevance of
1: studying Hispanic serving institutions in the community college context. So I think a couple of things that I would argue is like, one, it was actually community college scholars that were really writing about HSIs before anybody else's. And I'm talking about um, Bertha Layden, um, who is a, an extremely important community college scholar. Um, Brent Shada, who just retired from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, had been writing about it when he was uh, at Texas Tech in, in Texas. Um, Linda Hagedorn had been writing somewhat about this, and this is sort of before, um, HSIs became a sexy topic of, and when I say before, I mean like a decade before it became a sexy topic of scholarship. And I think one of the things that I would just argue is that like, I, if you are watching the list of emerging HSIs and you are looking not just at which ones are are about to hit the 25% threshold, but the ones who have just hit the 15, the community colleges are going to be the places that you're going to start seeing being on that list, probably before the four-year institutions, especially in places that haven't traditionally been these big Latinx populated areas. So For example, when you look at Iowa, um, there are three emerging HSIs in Iowa. One is like a private four-year seminary college. The other two are community colleges. Um, I was talking uh, two weeks ago to uh, someone in... North Carolina, who had never heard of of emerging HSIs. And I was like, look, if you go look at this list, and she was kind of like, well, it's North Carolina, we're never going to get HSIs or something. It's like, actually, you have several, they're both community colleges. So I I think in a lot of ways, the enrollment trends um, at community colleges are worth looking at and worth paying attention to, because those are going to be the ones that are going to probably hit HSI status in these newer Areas before the four-year institutions do, Um, and I think you're seeing that in places like the Pacific Northwest. You're seeing that in the Midwest. um, I think in Illinois, for instance, like most of the community or most of the of the HSI's um, in in the state of Illinois are part of the uh, community college system in Chicago, in particular. Um, So. Yeah, I think it is just super, super important to acknowledge that for the longest time, the majority of HSIs were community colleges. That's changed and that's fine. But two-year HSIs still enroll the plurality of Latinx students even today. And so um, I get that students and faculty members may study close to home, which means if they're at an HSI, they might be motivated to study their own institution. And that's fine. There's plenty of questions that can be asked at four year institutions. But I really, really think that we need more fully developed research projects um, on community colleges in particular. And community colleges, I I think any community college scholar would tell you this, we are in a lot of ways disenfranchised by higher education as a field. We're not necessarily given the same amount of respect and attention. Um, And, and, um, you know, I, I think of some of the work by, say, Casey Ozaki and Amanda Latz, where they've talked about how um, if you want to be a social justice oriented person in higher education, you can't ignore community colleges.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much. And thank you for acknowledging some of our like um, sort of foundational work right around HSI is like so important and that, that those scholars were talking um, from the community college standpoint. And really those are, you know, we, we need to acknowledge that, that foundational work because um, you're right. People like um, uh, Linda Hagedorn, right, has been had been writing, like you said, longer, way longer than either me or you were even doctors yet, <laughs> right? Like it's we, had, true. we hadn't even thought about these things, right? I mean, um, if,
1: if you want to look at some of the like early foundational work on HSIs, go read back issues of the Community mm-hmm. College Journal of Research and Practice. Mm-hmm. That's actually like the journal that has some of the most foundational texts, in my opinion, on community colleges. And are yeah. on, on HSI's.
0: Yeah. Oh, thanks thanks for thanks for saying that because I think we we do right and I I do generally like I said right from the four-year space and I think oh I'm I'm, I'm uh, elevating four years too much right we need to do more more work around two years but you're right there is a good foundational work we just don't acknowledge it like we often don't acknowledge the really important work that um, community colleges are, are doing mm-hmm. um, so let's talk a little bit about your your forthcoming article toward a new understanding of Hispanic serving community colleges to be published in community college review where you <laughs> you extend the surveyness framework to HSCCs or Hispanic serving community colleges. Tell us a little bit about the article and particularly um, as you wrote it, the things that you would distinguish, right? As we say, like we, we need to make sure we're, we're giving community colleges their space in the HSI research and we're acknowledging the space that they're carving out in the research and practice. Um, what sort of emerged from that, that
1: framework that, that makes HSCCs distinct? You know, I think, that, I think that one of the things that I will say is that there, there are some parallel conversations. Like, I think that the, um, the representation piece of it in faculty, staff, leaders, institutional agents, whatever you want to call them, that is just a, a challenge. And, um, you know, getting, getting demographics on community college faculty can be kind of hard to come by. But, um, while I think that there's research that says that women and, and people of color are racially minoritized folks are, are, um, their numbers are higher, proportionately speaking in two-year colleges than they are like, say in the tenure ranks at four-year universities, um, it's still not on par with where we would want it to be. And so, Um, I I think that hopefully there's there's hope that that will just continue to change, because I think in talking to folks who have been involved in community colleges for a long time, I think that um, there are more Latinos who are going to graduate school and and who are coming to the, uh, you know, coming back to community colleges. I think it's probably making folks aware that you can have a really fulfilling career and do a lot of the same things that you might be able to do at a four-year institution at a two-year institution. And so that is something that we could do a better job of in preparing future faculty programs or in student affairs programs or things like that, of really highlighting the incredible work and the, the wealth of opportunities that are available there like as a career. Um. But I think some of the distinctions, um, you know, I I think one of the biggest realizations that I have had in particular is we really need to know more about what servingness looks like on the career and technical education side. Um, I I think that, um, you know, Gina, you've done the work about HSI identity? And is it about, is it outcomes driven? Is it about enrollment rates versus graduation rates and stuff like that? And I think that community colleges are really um, held to account for things like retention and graduation rates, especially on the transfer side, but um, how you measure success or how you, um, how you recruit students and things like that, I think looks totally different on the career and technical education side of things. Um, That is just something that we haven't talked too much about. I think I found like one one literature review that was kind of old that says that, that Latinx students um, are overrepresented in career and technical education, and also over, more likely to enroll in career and technical education fields that are some of the lowest-paying jobs. And so, as as we think about servingness, as we think about community development and workforce development, especially over the last two years since the pandemic, it's what are the opportunities to be able to to create pathways to really well paying and fulfilling jobs for Latinx students in their respective communities, um, regardless of what that might look like. Um, That might be a short-term certificate program. That might be a stackable degree that goes all the way to an associate's degree. And then maybe that goes all the way to a four-year, you know, a a transfer degree to a four-year institution Or I think on drawing some of Edna Martinez's incredible work on community college baccalaureates, do Hispanic-serving institutions um, or or community colleges start offering more for your institutions? Um, I hope that the community colleges that are are listening to this uh, read Edna's work in particular because she's brought up some very, very critical questions about what what the offering of baccalaureate degrees at the community college level does to overall costs and opportunities and, and access and things like that. But, um, yeah, I, I really, really, really want to see, um, more of the work that connects career and technical education. Um, and, and that ends up, I think that ends up opening up HSI work that ends up being more P20 in scope. Because career technical education isn't something that starts when a student graduates from high school. It actually, it actually could potentially start while they're still in high school. So um, what, does, what does that whole pipeline look like? And what are, what are um, the obligations of colleges, either two years or four years, to their local high schools, to their feeder high schools, and in understanding like how they create these really clear pathways for their students? Um, so those are those are kind of those things. I mean, I think that um, you know one thing that sticks out to me on the representation point, and this was something that um, Brent Shada talked about in an old article. Um, but you know, you have work by say Cindy, Cindy Alcantar and Edwin Hernandez who had written about um, here the faculty or your guides or the staff members or your guides and and that students respond very, very well when they feel like they are cared for, when they feel like there's someone who is there to help them navigate. And we know that that's part of Yoso's model and navigational capital and all of these different things. But one of the things that one of the points that Brent Shada had written about in like 2004 was that um, at least at a community college, a Hispanic serving community college? It didn't really matter if the person who was serving as that institutional agent was Latinx identified themselves? What was important is just, I think, I don't know that he puts it in these terms, but I'm gonna put it in these terms. It it has to do about cultural humility. It has to do about cultural awareness, about what we may call cultural competence and stuff like that. And I think just, just knowing how to respect these students and who they are holistically, to demonstrate a level of personal servingness, which I think that's something we talk about institutional servingness, but we don't necessarily talk about personal servingness and what that means. And so, I think that that's part of it. Um, and so, you know, it does does the actual like box that a person checks when they apply for a job, like who they are racially, ethnically? matter as much as what they care about and what values they hold and how they can demonstrate servingness. I don't know. I don't, I'm not actually making a statement that it's either, or I think it's yes. And.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for that really just complicating, um, how we value HSIs, right? Like that's really, like you mentioned, you know, some of my early work was like questioning, like is outcomes the only way we're gonna measure servingness, right? Which is where the servingness model really came from, right? Of like, we can't rely on, I'm not even gonna say 150% graduation, six-year graduation, right? Like that. that's been the measure, which is a four-year, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, measure. And like, it's just not, it's not going to work for uh, community colleges. And you bring up all these things. And I was even thinking about, um, I've worked with a couple Hispanic serving community colleges recently, and their dual
1: enrollment programs are a major part of what they do. That is, that is huge. I mean, here in Iowa, that is a tremendous part of, and I think that especially in the place of just declining enrollments and declining revenue streams from the state and things like that dual enrollment has been something that is helping to prop up the community colleges here in Iowa at least and and so what does that mean but do are we are we certain that the dual enrollment pathways are equitable for all students and and that they're not being unintentionally tracked for instance, into certain mm-hmm. pathways, like more career and technical education pathways versus more four year. And, and that is not for me to criticize CTE at all. Um, I just want to be sure that students have a choice in the matter and that that is not being made for them. Mm. Um, based on certain assumptions about their ethno-racial identities or culture or whatever.
0: Yeah, for sure. Oh yeah, it's so complicated. But the CTE, the dual enrollment, the guided pathways—all of that needs to come into this oh. Hispanic-serving community colleges conversation. Yeah.
1: yeah, and you know something—something something that I that I really struggle with—and and to be honest, as I say this, I will tell you, I don't have an answer for this is, is, you know, the, the, I don't want to say trope, because I feel like it's an important question, but it's just such a common question that I, you know, the, is it a mission? Are we Hispanic enrolling versus Hispanic serving? And that goes back to like the, you know, uh, uh, the book chapter that Francis Contreras and, and Estela van simon had written in like 2008. It's a great question, but but I think that um, something that I think about within the HSI community college context is, um, is Hispanic servingness a mission or can it be a mission? There are some HSIs that will write their HSI status into their mission statements or into their strategic plans and things like that. And I think that where it gets complicated for community colleges in particular is one, these are open access institutions that have the charge to serve everyone who walks through their doors. Um, And so, you know, unless you're like South Texas College, that is over 90% Latinx, like, does it make sense for you to put that into your mission statement? Um, The other thing is that when you look at just the breadth of, of, Uh, you know, community education, adult and basic education, CTE, transfer to four-year institutions, like all of these different programs that community colleges are responsible for, for providing. And Vanessa Smith-Morass has called them the multi-purpose college. Like, does that just tack on one more thing? And when you tack on one more thing, does that make it lose its importance or, or, you know, is it just one more thing that they're doing so many things that maybe you're not doing anything well at that point? So I, I don't know. I, I really struggle philosophically day to day. Like is HSI a mission and, and for community colleges, I don't know that it, I don't know that it should be, or, or, or could it be? I don't, I don't know.
0: Yeah. That's a really important philosophical question. I immediately think, well, yeah, at their core, HSI's uh, community colleges are, are basically what HSI's are historically. They're open access. They're broad access, right? They're, they're regionally based. They're, they're serving the community. Mm-hmm. That's what community colleges do, <laughs> right? Totally, which, yeah. Which, which is what I guess we could think back to some of the early advocates for the HSI designation were from community colleges. And like you mentioned, some of the early researchers
1: you know, we're, we're community college based. So, so yeah, I think it's a great philosophical question Mm -hmm. to play devil's advocate. Those institutions were doing it without a formal HSI Mm -hmm. status. And like Mm -hmm. they, they could still do the work without advertising it. So I don't know. (laughs) Right. Right. And then HSI
0: has now become the sort of like status thing right which is a whole nother complicated thing which I'm gonna ask you about that don't worry uh because that it it, I think it it goes against everything like if I just said that like HSI and community college are kind of the same one in the same um the status that people are now attaching HSI is 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 detracting from that you know and and, and in a lot of ways and
1: yeah and I think that that just reifies the point that there's um There's a lot that HSIs um, and HSI scholars can learn from community colleges and from past scholarship on on Mm -hmm. Hispanic serving community colleges.
0: Yeah, for sure. Oh, thank you for just, ooh, my brain hurts. I'm thinking of so many different <laughs> things now. I'm like, oh, I have so much reading and writing and thinking to do. Um, so thank you. Thank you for, for, for challenging me in that way. Um, But I do want to think also um, around your work around ethnic studies and me- Mexican American studies. Um, and something I've written about, right, is like, it, and it's in the surveillance framework is the importance of not only curriculum, but like culturally relevant mm-hmm. Um curriculum and ethnic studies, really, right? Which isn't even culturally relevant. It's its own thing. Right. 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 It's a whole nother level of relevance um, and, and justice, right? Focused um, um, curriculum. So talk to us a little bit about um, the the work you're doing with ethnic studies and 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 its connection to HSIs. I know sometimes you do do it within the context and sometimes not within the context of yeah. HSIs, but the really you know the connection
1: to servingness and, and the important role ethnic studies can play in servingness. So I think I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge like where the idea for this research came from. And it was really in watching Latinx students who were taking these Mexican-American studies courses at some of the community colleges in San Antonio, in particular Palo Alto College and Northwest Vista College, um, which are part of the same Alamo Colleges system. And um, in about 2014, 2015, there was this whole um, push to get Mexican-American studies added as a high school graduation requirement. It's now at least offered as an elective. But um, the uh, Texas Education Agency was soliciting uh, books to adopt uh, for the Mexican-American studies curriculum and only one at the time got submitted and it was horrifically racist. It was terrible. Like it, it was everything that a textbook should never be. It was, um, I I think it really down. just as an example, like it really downplayed Cesar Chavez, for instance, as just sort of like, oh yeah, this one community organizer. So like that, that's just like one, one example off the top of my head. But one of the things that I found so interesting is this was going on in the middle of like the summer. I think the, the legislature was still in session, but it was, it was starting to wrap up. So this was probably the end of the school year. Um, And these students were very much like organizing themselves to go watch these testimonies in Austin, to carpool, to go, Um, protest in Austin and things like that. And I think it was just like, man, what is it about these programs that students are so invested in that they are taking time off of work? They're taking time away from classes and their families or whatever. And they are so revved up about this that they're going to go, you know, 80 miles north to Austin to protest. And, And so for me, Um, you know, I think that uh, a lot of my work, I think around teaching and learning before I start talking to students, I I get really, um, my, my usual first impression or first instinct is to go talk to faculty to sort of get the lay of the land. And so I started talking to, um, about I think 12 or 13 faculty from around Texas, um, you know, in the Houston area and the El Paso area and South Texas and central Texas. And, um, you know, they were all just, Just talking about like what it was like to teach Moss, particularly as the previous president was was elected and the rhetoric that had been um, revved up because of him against immigrants, against dreamers and, and all of that. And, and I don't know, you know, it was, it was an interesting thing. I think that when somebody asked me, like, what is ethnic studies about? I think at the heart of it, it's asking the fundamental question of what does it mean to be a minoritized person in the United States at any given time? And, and it is this interdisciplinary study about trying to find one's place within this you know, historical and contemporary space and, and, and what does that mean? And I think that, um, you know, the, the stories and some of the snippets that, that I can remember these faculty talking about were just about helping students find themselves, helping them, um, really work through some trauma that they may not have even been aware of that they had Um, certainly just some, some self-loathing about their ethno-racial identities. Um, and, And, you know, and I can think about like what it's given me in terms of being able to make sense of being a half white, half Latina identified person um in you know this is this is before I like found Gloria on Zaldua and was able to to understand the borderlands like not just as a physical space, which is where I grew up, but as a, an epistemology, as a way of being, as a way of knowing, um, and things like that. So I I just think that um an HSI can offer an ethnic studies program as a way to, to give that language and, and that educational experience to their students. And I think that the other thing that ethnic studies is very motivated to do is it, it really, at least the educators that I have talked to are so motivated to help give their students and their educational journeys, meaning whether that means like finding ways to give back to their communities, finding ways to uplift, to break cycles of generational poverty. Um, And just all of these different things, regardless of what path, it's not about picking a career for someone, but I think it's about just saying like through education, like these are the ways that you can transform yourself, your family, your community in a way that I just think is so beautiful.
0: Absolutely. Beautifully said what are your thoughts on um, places that HSIs that are in states uh, that are attacking ethnic studies or CRT, right? Like mm-hmm. you are, a, that's such a huge conversation. Um, does it make it harder for them to do this work or can they still do this work and, and, and they maybe even in another sort of way and not call it ethnic studies? Like what are the challenges of Doing really contested work because ethnic studies is very contested, Um, unfortunately. Because you just laid out all the reasons why it's beautiful.
1: I mean, but can I tell you what I what I also find um, really amazing about these these folks that I've worked with? A lot of them really have a sort of. Can I cuss on here? They <laughs> sure. They sort, sure. Of, they sort <laughs> of have a fuck you attitude, and to mm-hmm. say that, like, I'm going to. I'm going to teach this regardless of what U S society tells me the Trump administration tells me, I'm going to teach this because that's what the, the, because that is the rhetoric because, I, and I don't know. I mean, I think I think that that is in part um, the the activist bent that I think draws people to ethnic studies in the first place to be students of ethnic studies and then to go and be ethnic studies educators. They see their teaching work as their as their ministry, as their their life's purpose, and to be able to to teach that to other students is part of that legacy. And and I mean. I remember probably one of the most beautiful lines that I can remember in one of the interviews was talking to um, a history professor at a community college and in asking him like what the place was of ethnic studies and community colleges and everything. And one of the things that he said is that for him, like the, the, the existence of ethnic studies programs and like the growth of ethnic studies over the last 10 years was one of the ways to show him that the civil rights movement had been a success because there were more Latinos who were graduating from college and going and getting master's degrees and PhDs to be able to go into, into plant those seeds for the next generation. And, and so I, I think that he had as a historian, he sort of had this longer perspective to it. So I think that for him, um, getting, getting sort of enmeshed in the day-to-day politics wasn't, I think he was playing a longer game for why he got his PhD in Chicano history, but really, um, intentionally chose to teach at the community college. Um, and so I I don't know, you know, I I think that there, there's just a sort of ballsiness to, to some of these educators in particular to say that, um, yeah, you know what, I'm going to teach this until they don't allow me to teach it anymore. And I think probably one of the best things that I've seen strategically happen in Texas is they made sure that these ethnic studies courses that aren't necessarily listed under ethnic studies, they might be, um, you know, Chicano history and listed under HITS or, or Chicano literature or something like that listed under English. They have had those added to the core curriculum requirements by the state to ensure that they have that sort of stamp of approval, stamp of of legitimacy from the state to be teaching those courses in the first place. That makes it a little harder for them to be totally erased, I think. Um, and, and, And I guess the other thing I would add is I feel like community college ethnic studies programs have flown under the radar in a lot of ways. Um, and so, um, you know, when I say I study ethnic studies programs in community colleges, more often than not, I met with, wait, there's ethnic studies programs in community colleges. So um, we'll see. I mean, you know, the the lieutenant governor of Texas, Dan Patrick, announced a couple months ago that he wanted to try to revoke tenure or to fire uh, professors at universities that were teaching CRT and all that stuff and you know, we'll, we'll see if that actually happens. And if we descend into some sort of dystopian society, um, even more so than it already feels like right now. (laughs) Word. (laughs) Thank
0: you for that. I think it's such an important idea to think around that. Um, I mean, ethnic studies comes from a a resistance movement anyways. Right. And that, that, that really, that idea of like, you know, fuck you and your policies and whatever. I'm going to teach it anyways. And you're absolutely right. I think one of the best methods we can do in HSIs is to put these sort of ideas into other courses, Mm -hmm. right? Like, cause they really should be, people shouldn't have to just take an ethnic studies course and, or all the work shouldn't be put on ethnic studies faculty. Um, The math faculty, I say that all the time. I'm like, math should teach ethnic studies, right? Chemistry, (laughs) Chemistry can teach ethnic studies, engineering, right? Like, everybody can.
1: <laughs> I mean, I you know, not to. I remember, I remember being at a he a couple of years ago and there was like a dean of a medical school who, who had the podium. And I, I mean, he just, he, I will never forget him saying like, I really wish that more Chicano studies majors would apply to medical school because I, they already have this intrinsic sense of purpose for their education and, and for their goals of like how they will get back to communities and how they will understand the world and moving around like as a, as a Brown person in a white profession or or whatever. And so, I mean, I, I wish that I could convince everyone that, that ethnic studies is, and across the board, whether you're talking about indigenous and native American studies, you know, African-American black studies, like all of it, Asian American studies, all of it would love to see it for everyone.
0: Absolutely. Whew, all right. Well, I think ethnic studies is a part of servingness, this 100%. So yeah. the more we talk about this, I think the, the more, you know, ideas we give people for those that are, are are listening about like, how do you intertwine this in, in some of the things you're doing, because it's part of HSI mm-hmm. to give back to, to teach students that to the desire to give back to their communities. That's HSI. That's the mission of HSI, at least in my dream, <laughs> whether or not it is, um, but it should be right. It absolutely, should be um, a part of it. So um, what about your, your research uh, around faculty teaching and learning? What can we learn for the faculty listening who are thinking, how do I do better serving this in my classroom? What can we learn from your research about um, faculty teaching practices um, in HSIs?
1: So I think that um you know one of one of the studies that I've done which is not an HSI study by the way but I was I was looking at um, Okay. We'll forgive I was, you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, had to do, I had to do one so I wasn't an HSI study but um at the beginning of the pandemic or, or I think like right before the pandemic but people were home a lot which was great cuz they filled out a questionnaire. I I had interviewed um or not interviewed. I had sent out a Qualtrics questionnaire um, to community college faculty nationwide. I got I got a tremendous amount of responses, and I asked um, you know I asked these faculty across disciplines, across states, across regions. Um, how do you how do you incorporate culturally relevant, responsive, sustaining, like whatever you want to call it, insert term here. Um, into your class. And a lot of times, um, or a lot of the responses really just felt like it wasn't about the self. It wasn't about investigating or interrogating underlying assumptions. We might have complexities of identities that we might carry that, that we project onto other people that we bring into our classroom. Um, I think a lot of the times with these faculty members, their responses were about like how do we check the box of diversity? So like if you're teaching literature 101, you make sure that like the House on Mango Streets on your syllabus, and then you can check that box of okay, I have, I have uh, been able to to say that I'm teaching Latinx literature or Latino literature in my class, and and so I think. Um, I think one is about having really good conversations with yourself about implicit biases about the language you use about the underlying assumptions that you are making about your students and and how that I think holds throughout all parts of of your class, whether that be the design, the syllabus the the assignments and and all of that um you know I think. Just as a personal example, even though this isn't related to HSI, I think that over the past couple of years, like I have been really trying to push myself around accessibility and um and the assumptions that I make around that. And so um, how do you intentionally and systematically design your classes with your students in mind and, and what that looks like? And so I think a, a good conversation and critical conversation with self is a good starting point. Um and then I, I think that uh, if you are not Latinx identified, then how do you show that cultural competence, that cultural humility? Um, and and if you are, then how do you share share those parts of yourself? How do you incorporate that? And and I think that um, you know with some of the writings, say by Laura Mandon about like Pensante and stuff like that. Um, it's asking for, I think a tremendous amount of vulnerability and openness to your students that can be really hard and really emotionally taxing to demonstrate to your students. Um, and I, 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 can acknowledge and hold space for the fact that like two years into this pandemic and that just seems never ending and people are stressed out and it's just hard and everything sucks right now. Um, but I think being able to, to go back and to, to reconnect, I think with, with students and to really just show that ethic of care and things like that. And, and I really, really think I want to say that by also acknowledging, I think we are all doing the best that we can right now after the last two years, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I know that after like this semester in particular, I just really felt like, okay, I am tapped out. My reserves are tapped out. Like, how can I use this break from my teaching to recenter, recollect myself and whatever so that I can go back into the fall semester and hopefully be present and, 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 and um encouraging and loving and like whatever it is that that we need to do. Um, I don't know that the advice that I have for faculty is necessarily anything aside from how do you show your students that you love them? Because so many times, like in the in the literature about community college students, it's about the, it's not about what they learned or how well they learned it. It's about how they felt. Um, which I know like gets into like a very stereotypical like Maya Angelou quote or something like that. But I think it's really true.
0: Absolutely. No, 100 percent. Everything you said, I I agree with. I talk about this right when I get when I have the opportunity to talk to faculty and they want to know how to do serving this in the classroom. It's all of that. But it, it it's often I'd say like you got to start with yourself, your identity. Right. Who are you? Who are your students and how are you going to connect with them? Yeah. Uh, such an important concept. Um, and it seems like super easy. Yet we don't do it. <laughs> we jump in and like, here's the syllabus. Here's all the assignments. Here's all that versus like who are we as people, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I remember this is like not related, but kind of related. I remember being an undergraduate and we, I had this political science professor who I think had, she, she, I'm pretty sure she had an Ivy league education and had like been a lecturer or something like that at Harvard before she came to UTSA. And I kid you not, apparently like people were being rowdy in, in the classroom or something like that. And she was writing something on the board and she turns around and goes, just because you all are attending a state school doesn't mean y'all need to act like it. Mm. And it was like record scratch Mm. (laughs) and everybody just sort of went, what, excuse me. And this probably happened a third into a third of the way into the semester And I don't know that that faculty member ever really regained control. I think that people, there wasn't like a mass withdrawal from the classroom because we were past census day, (laughs) but I don't know that she ever regained control of her class. Yeah.
0: And that idea is like, I mean, it's this, you know, it's the deficit thinking around
1: like 100%. She said what she said. I mean, there's no mistake. And I remember her trying to walk it back and stuff like that. And one woman in the classroom being like, sorry, we're not Harvard. Yeah. Yeah,
0: sorry, you didn't get a job. More like, yeah, yeah, sorry, you didn't get a job there. Because we're here because we want to be here. (laughs) Right. I'm going home at the end of the day. My mom lives down the street. You know, like there's reasons we make decisions about where we go to school. And it's not about elitism all the time, right? Um, No. So that's interesting. And I think it leads right into the next question that I'm going to ask you about this, um, you know, this new alliance um, for Hispanic Serving Research Universities, which includes 20 HSRIs or what they're calling HSRUs. They changed, we've been calling them HSRIs, but they're saying HSRUs, um, including UTSA, your three-time alma mater, um, is one of the 20 R1 HSIs that are now forming an alliance. Um, What are your thoughts on on this alliance? Uh, uh, Yeah, I'll just stop there. What are your thoughts?
1: (laughs) I worry. I think as someone, so, I mean, I can... hmm. You know, coming from being a graduate from UTSA and going to the world of an AAU institution, um, which is what Iowa State has until very recently been, um, and and seeing what a quote-unquote R1 school looks like... um, in a lot of ways, it, it's just interesting because I think that like in the world that I lived in when I was a practitioner, I mean, there were there were times where it just seemed like we had to account for every single penny. We had to really be conscious about enrollment dips around um, just, just uh, budgetary constraints all the time um, about what the state was going to do and stuff like that. And I, I think that um, being in an R1 institution, it's just different. The game is just totally different and the rules of the game are different. And um, I get to see how there is a staff, of, I, I'll just, as an example, for instance, the infrastructure for grant writing, for instance, is ginormous to say the least. There's someone who is always working on NSF grants and people who will come and teach workshops on how to like break the code of NSF proposals to get. And I mean, you you worked with Title V grant writing. Like you know how this is, like that, you know, you have, you can pay people here who are always grant writing and that is their job and and things like that. Whereas, you know, a community college, if they have, if they have a grant writer, it might be one. And I don't know. I think that like being in the community college world and and wanting to call attention to them to be an advocate for community colleges. I do worry about what happens when some of the, even even if it's perceived power, but if some of the most powerful HSIs are essentially banding together and, and holding a lot of the cards, especially when it comes to Title V funds or these NSF funds, these NH, like all of these federal funding mechanisms that are specifically for HSIs then it just makes me worry about what sort of agency community colleges have. Um, and if they have a, a, a fair shot at, at getting some of these monies for themselves and I can already hear somebody shooting back of like, oh, well, you know, UTSA can just go ahead and, 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 um, pair up with one of the alamo colleges and stuff like that but if you've ever been involved with grant writing and once you you know you might have a five million dollar cost but then when you factor in indirect costs and then when you start doing sub awards and all of these different things um that money gets dried up really really quickly so a five million dollar grant is not as much money as you think it is um and so and and the other thing is i think a lot of times in those partnerships. I worry about whether or not community colleges are really treated as true partners or whether or not it is is four-year institutions telling them what they're going to do. And, and community colleges just kind of going along for the ride because of the money. And so yeah, I just, I worry so much about that. I worry so much about the regional comprehensive institutions um, that are HSIs and their ability to be able to use those monies to expand services for, for their students and, and stuff like that. So I I don't know. I guess I just, I really, really respect a lot of the institutions and the people who are involved in this. And I think that they are equity-minded people. And I hope that together they can keep that equity-mindedness across HSIs so that it just doesn't feel like they are just gobbling up the resources that are meant for a much larger pool of institutions.
0: Yep, I'm with you. Same thing. I'm like, I respect these institutions. I am for uh, different types of HSIs coming together and supporting each other in the work that they do that's specific to what they do, but I, I worry about yeah, <laughs> the, the, the selectivity and the elitism of, like, we're the R1 HSIs, right? And, oh, and yeah. particularly particularly around the grant getting, right? That, like, HSI at its core was intended to provide funding for under-resourced institutions, not for institutions that already have a good amount of funding to get another uh, grant for the, for the status, right? But we got an HSI grant, too. I worry and, about that. And
1: you know what? I I was a student. I was a master's and doctoral student at UTSA when Texas really ramped up this rhetoric around tier one, and which is, I have to say, like a completely artificial term that the state of Texas came up with. I've written about it. I think that my stance on what I wrote as, has evolved as I think the story mm-hmm. finished playing out because I was writing about it like as this tier one ball was rolling. And now they've said that they are tier one and all of this and, and have joined this Alliance and things like that. And, and in some ways, in some ways, yes, I think that there are some benefits to that prestige and stuff like that, but it just also makes me worry about how far institutions, especially like one, like UTSA, if you go back and read its original mission statement it was about being an accessible institution to Mexican-American students in South Texas.
0: Right.
1: And so um, to what extent are, are they being held to account for that access and that success and things like that? That is that is always a critical question with Title V grants is what is the accountability um, required to ensure that these monies are benefiting Latinx students and, and stuff like that. So there's, there's so many questions like my, my knee jerk reaction was to grimace a little bit when I heard Mm -hmm. that the, um, the new alliance of these R1 institutions, but, um, I will stay cautiously optimistic and, and hope, <laughs> like I said, that the people that I have a lot of respect for um, are able to, to hang on to that equity mindedness.
0: Yeah. I think the reality is that no matter how equity minded people are, higher ed does what higher ed does because it immediately makes me think about um, the uh, excellency in education's. Um, seal of excelencia yeah uh i went to the uh, which I, I i think you know excelencia in education is very equity-minded very focused on serving latino students like 100 i i support the work that they do um and cite their work all the time um i went to a, a session for the seal at a, a at the at a c conference and they said 89 percent of the institutions that have gotten the seal are four-year institutions yeah. That right there, like my heart sunk and I was sitting at a table with community college practitioners who were like, so like, should we even be here? Right. Like immediately they got the message that it was like, this isn't for community colleges because we're deferring to four year things, right? Like whatever that may be. There's also a, uh, you got to pay to, you know, even be a part of that process and stuff. So there's, there's all these levels of leaving certain institutions out, Completely.
1: Um, And, and, you know, I think that, um, and I think that what, what people lose sight of uh, oftentimes is just like the realities of four-year institutions just don't work for two-year institutions. mm And so, um, like I have a colleague here, Michael Brown, who's really interested in, and trying to get more, um, more community colleges involved in STEM grant making, like specifically through the national science foundation, because historically speaking, community colleges don't apply for STEMs, Mm -hmm. but they may be really, really important drivers of broadening participation for minority, for minoritized faculty or students. But, you know, the thing about it is like, if you're talking about research and and stuff like that, community colleges aren't driven by research. And so, um, you know, there, there are certainly community college faculty and IR folks who do research, but that's not necessarily something that they are paid to do. They might just Mm -hmm. be doing that. And I think, um, I think similar to, to what uh, uh, Norma um, Jimenez Hernandez had written about, Mm -hmm. Um, in the serving in her serving, this book chapter is like, you end up taking up, taking up some of this extra labor because you want to do it and because you see value in it, but that doesn't mean that the college sees a value in it. Mm -hmm. Um, and and so, you know, I think that, yeah, just creating these mechanisms where we are just like closing ranks around certain kinds of institutions is really scary. Yeah,
0: for sure. I knew you would have lots of thoughts. I mean, we, this is, it's a complicated thing, right? There's yeah. a lot of, uh, of, of things to, to consider. And, and for us who are equity-minded scholars around, you know, HSIs and community colleges and, and are really, truly care about this work, um, we'll keep, you know, challenging folks. Mm-hmm. So, so we're going to do. We're going to do it. Keep on going. So the final question is, and, you know, feel free to take one or two sentences, um, but the final question is, if you had to share with our audience, uh, what's up with HSIs, how would you respond to that? Get pasa, HSIs?
1: I think we are still figuring it out. I think that there are still so many critical, complicated questions that need to be asked um, around place, region, and those connections. Um... You know, I I think that um, adding more nuance to institutional type and institutional identity is, is must-have. I mean, you know, it has occurred to me that you know Anne Marie and Gloria Crisp and and Diane Elizondo had come out with their work on typologies, you know, seven years ago, and not a whole lot has actually been taking up on further further exploring and, and nuancing those typologies and 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 all that, and so. You know, I I think that there we are still in the midst of dealing with some critical questions about HSIs. And I think in that case, it can be a really exciting field of study as long as it is done with intentionality, because I feel like um, I get sent a lot of stuff to peer review that will sort of tack on this this HSI component to the research without really explaining and exploring like what that means and how it frames the study. And so um, if you're gonna throw it out there, you need to tell me why it matters. Absolutely, 100%. And I
0: agree with all of that. So thank you for for answering that that final question. And thank you for being a guest um, today on Que Pasa HSIs. um, It's been a wonderful, stimulating conversation. um, And I really enjoyed this time and I hope our listeners do as well. So thank you. Thank you.